Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team this is hit well in a center field that one's carrying out at center it's out of here oh johnny with a pinch hit home run at the plate is mike trout the pitch on its way it's blasted out to dead center field out of here ball gets away he's gonna break for the plate ball game is over the Angels with a walk-off win here in the bottom of the ninth inning. This is the Angels Recap Podcast, a review of the past week in Angels baseball. Here's your host, Trent Rush. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome to the Angels Recap Podcast. Man, we got a good one in store for you here today. Appreciate you joining us here. Appreciate all our subscribers out there. If you haven't done that yet, go to iTunes, uh, wherever you subscribe to podcasts, make sure you subscribe to this one because we're going to be coming out with good stuff each and every Wednesday while this hiatus continues. A couple weeks ago, we had Ty Buttry on. We had Joe Madden last week. And this week, Jim Abbott will be our special guest. And then second half of the podcast, an awesome conversation with baseball author and historian Chris Ebting, just kind of putting this entire coronavirus pandemic into some context when it comes to baseball. So you definitely want to make sure that you check that out coming up here on this show today. A lot of information out there uh, these days. You go to angels.com for everything related angels to find out what's going on with this angels team. We're going to chance to hear from some players. There have been some cool videos out there. We were getting some updates earlier this week about Shohei Otani close to throwing off a mound and Griffith Canning progressing well. So that's good to hear about some of the current angels who are doing a lot of uh, workouts individually and a lot of Zoom calls and staying connected through a variety of different ways through their phone, which I know many of you are going through right now. It's really not that different in baseball as we're trying to get through this coronavirus pandemic, get back to baseball. I know that earlier this week there was some ideas floated out there uh, by ESPN about reported conversations uh, with MLB and the Players Union about possibly playing in Arizona. That seems to be one of many possibilities that MLB is discussing right now. Look, we need to get baseball back. We need to get our lives back, but you got to do it the safest way possible. So hopefully baseball can be that shot in the arm to get baseball or to get our country back. Hopefully that time comes soon. you got to do it the safest way you can, and I know there are people uh, working for that to happen ASAP. Everybody wants baseball back. That needs to happen, and uh, the best and brightest in the world are working on that uh, for it to happen so we can get our great game back. Now, one of the things we're doing here on this podcast is we're going to be talking to a lot of Angel alumni. Uh, We're lining up some others coming up here in the next several weeks to be joining us here on the podcast, something that we're going to be doing not just during this hiatus time, but we're going to keep it going uh, once baseball comes back as well. Just why not keep the conversation going, check in uh, with great angels of the past, Um, We're going to talk with some angels of the present as well. It's all coming up here on this show. Uh, But we are especially excited to have somebody that I think is one of the most inspirational athletes maybe ever, and that would be Jim Abbott. All right, we're joined now by an angels legend, one of the most inspirational people to have ever played the game of baseball, and just a a really great dude who I'm happy to have on the show today, and Jim Abbott. Jim, uh, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, I am curious how you're occupying your time now here in this uh, quarantine period where we're trying to get through without baseball these days. (laughs) 
Trent, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there fighting a lot of tough situations, so I have tremendous empathy for them and and, and praise for the people on the front lines. But uh, I miss sports like you. I, um, I'm a big sports fan, big Angel fan, and, and I miss turning it on. And, and uh, this thing would be halfway manageable if we could just watch a game or two. This is getting a bit old. <laughs> I'm with you, and as much as I am enjoying looking back at some of the uh, games of the past that I've been doing a lot lately, my gosh, we, we need like real games to happen. I already know the outcome, so that kind of ruins it for me. Um, <laughs> I am curious because uh, we've been trying to get you on this show for a while, and you're like always—I mean, you always are up for it, but you're always so busy, and, and you're always on the road. And I know you got your speaking tour and your book several years ago that you put out, and. Um, how has your life changed in the last, you know, month or so? Because it seems like you were going a million miles a minute all over the place. Yeah, I've been very lucky, Trent. I've been able to keep pretty busy post-baseball. Um, you know, I've had a chance to get out and, and, and become a speaker and share my story. And, and uh, as you can imagine, the, the conference world and the meeting world and, and, and places where people are getting together in big ballrooms has certainly uh, – gone by the wayside for a minute so um i, I really love doing that now i came to it slowly i never imagined myself being a, a, a professional speaker or you know or someone who was really really comfortable on stage and i still get nervous but um i love it you know i i, I love going out and meeting people and and uh, have been amazed uh in my post baseball life how many people connect with the game and how many people you know, remember the players and connect with the stories. And, and um, you know, that person-to-person contact, I, I know we're all sheltered in place. Um, I hope that comes back someday. It would be a real a real sad development if, if you know, those kinds of things uh, don't return to normal. Jim, I, I, don't, I can't imagine you would know when you were a young player or even before you uh, were playing professionally or even at Michigan – that you would have the kind of impact that you've had on so many people. At what point in your playing days did you realize that, you know what, I have a chance to really make a difference in a lot of people's lives? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't really, really come to appreciate that until after my career was over. Um, that's not to say I wasn't aware. Uh, you know, I had a, you know, playing in around the country and playing in great places, and, you know, Anaheim and, New York and Chicago and, and and all over the country. We traveled to some of the greatest ballparks in the world and played against some of the best ball players. And um, <clears throat> but a lot of my experiences happened when families started to show up and kids facing similar challenges as me. And and yet when I was playing, I was still you know dedicated to trying to be the best baseball player I could be and and not worry too much about the circumstances of how I played, but how well I could play and. Um, so that was my mission. You know, I felt like if, if people could connect to my career as, as a, uh, I hate to say role model or somebody to look up to, that that being good, you know, being being a, a, a productive part of a major league team would would booster that story, would help it. And, um, you know, after my career was over and starting to travel around and meet people, um, I realized just how f- profound an impact you can have, you know, when you go – meet somebody in the middle of Iowa or up in the Northeast or in Florida or in the South, you know, and, and they all know the story. They all know baseball players and, and they know the stadiums and they know, you know, who you played with and who you played against. And um, it's a pretty cool feeling. And I, I don't know that major league players, while they're in the heat of the battle, really appreciate that until you actually get out in the world and, and have an appreciation for how special the experience is. Jim, is that something that you talk to current players about? Like, to, I mean, obviously your situation different than anybody else that's in Major League Baseball. But at the same time, it doesn't matter, you know, who you are or what you do. Uh, you can make a big different, big impact in this game. So is that something you talk about with the guys playing today? I try to, Trent. You know, I, I get it. You know, I know how hard – uh, Major League Baseball is. I know professional baseball. Let's let's include the minor leagues in, in trying to get there. Um, incredibly difficult, incredibly competitive. Um, it, it's a sheltered world, as you know. You know, guys are fighting their butts off to stay on a roster or, or compete and be the best they can, and then they get on a bus and get on a plane and fly to the next city and do it again. And you got a ton of scrutiny. 
Uh, in today's day and age with the social media, I can't even imagine, you know, all the different angles that people, you know, come at players these days. But um, I do hope that they take time out. You know, I do hope that there is an appreciation for how special of a time it is, how quickly it goes. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to be too long-winded, but it, I had one of the coolest experiences I had was a couple years ago when Mariano Rivera retired from baseball. And um, he came around to every major league park for the last time, and, and he asked to speak uh, to the people behind the scenes. You know, so up in Anaheim Stadium, he, he invited 40 or 50 employees at the stadium, you know, people who work uh, at the ticket booth, people who the ushers, people who are in the janitor service, people who clean the stadium. And he sat around and he gave them all an autographed baseball and he wanted to hear their stories. And um, it was such a cool thing. You know, he was doing this in a, in a, in a visiting ballpark. And, you know, there were people there. I played with the Angels for, for six-plus years, and, and there were people there I never even met. And I, I felt really bad about that, like, these are the people that allow us to play the game. And Mariano Rivera doing that and taking time out to acknowledge those people was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, you know, I hope the players have an appreciation for that, the coaches have an appreciation for that, and just how lucky we all are. Jim, it's amazing you bring that up. In our office, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, there's a picture of you and Mariano, and I think Big John is in there as well. And it's just, you know, kind of showing, you know, what was going on that day. I have no, I've seen that picture a thousand times. I walk past it every day when I walk through the front door uh, over to the studio. Uh, I have no idea the backstory there. So just selfishly, thank you for, for sharing that because I think that's pretty neat. Uh, but a chance to interact like that uh, is a big thing. But for you, obviously, you know, people know your story, whether you've told it, others have told it. But I, I would like to know, when did you really think you were going to be a Major League Baseball player? Was this something that you thought as a kid that, oh, of course I'm going to make the Major Leagues? Or, or was there any struggle with, hey, am I really going to get there? Like, when did you really think it was possible? I didn't really appreciate that I would be a Major League player. Um you know, I, I always wanted to make the next team. I always wanted to – there was never – it was never any certainty, to be honest. I was never uh, – you know, I was always kind of fighting for a spot, and that's just the, the truth. I had success growing up. I did. I did well, and, and, and there were times when I did really well. Um, but I always wanted to make the high school team. You know, that was my goal. And then I uh, – you know, when I did well there, I wondered if maybe I could get an opportunity to be, play college ball. And uh, I played at the University of Michigan, which was a dream come true for me, and, and great facilities and great coaches. And then uh, when I played for the USA teams, uh, tried out for and made those teams and played in the Pan Am Games and I played in the Olympics, uh, and I was playing with great ball players. I was playing with, you know, Robin Ventura and Tino Martinez and Charlie Nagy and Ben McDonald and, and holding my own, you know, and, and that's when I started to feel like maybe I could – play professional baseball and, and get the opportunity to do that and um but i swear i swear to you it wasn't until a spring training of my first year with the angels and and some some angel fans may remember this we used to go out to palm springs for for spring training at the end and marcel latchman was our pitching coach we were staying at the gene autry hotel and uh he pulled me aside and, and said, Hey, we're not gonna send you to double A as scheduled. We're gonna bring you to Anaheim to start the year on the big league squad and uh it wasn't until that moment <laughs> until I actually truly believed that I would get to play in the major league someday and uh I'll always remember that that time of year and Marcel is one of my favorite people and, and the Gene Autry Hotel was uh holds a special place in my memory. Well, I would imagine so, and going back to that for a second, though, because as much of a positive thing as that must have been for you to hear, and obviously you earned it right away, had an incredible rookie season, and the rest was history, but was there some resentment from some other guys like, hey, how does this guy get to skip the minor leagues and go right to the big leagues? Was that ever something that kind of crossed your mind, or did you ever worry about that? I never felt that, Trent. I, um, You know, I was... It was a fantastic team. '89 was was a Doug Rader was our manager. We had just gotten uh, you know Burt Blylev. We had Mike Witt and Kirk McCaskill and Chuck Finley, and um, you know we had a pretty good pitching staff. Brian Harvey was really coming into his own, and um, you know it was a veteran squad. It, it was an older team, so um, 
everybody was pretty comfortable in their own skin, and they really they really were mentors to me. And matter of fact, uh, Dan Petrie, who was in the starting rotation and was a hero of mine growing up in Michigan because he played and starred for the Tigers, it was his spot that I ultimately took in the rotation because he got hurt in spring training. And the way he treated me, uh, the dinners that he took me to, uh, the lessons he tried to instill, um, I'll never forget. He was a very classy guy, and, and, and um, so that's what the team was like back then. And, and, you know, I was holding my own. I was contributing, so I think they felt like there was some merit there. And uh, it was really a special Angels team. We didn't get to the playoffs, um, the A's and um, you know, some of those other teams had really great teams, but I think we won 90-plus games, and it was a, an unbelievable introduction to the big leagues. I would guess so. I, I have a lot of questions about your big league career we're going to get to, uh, but you mentioned this a second ago, the opportunity to play for Team USA and, and wear those three letters on your chest and play in the Olympics and pitch in the Olympics. Um, with baseball supposed to be coming back this year, uh, this summer, it's obviously been pushed to next summer now, there seems to be a lot of mo- uh, a movement among current big leaguers about, like, hey, man, we want to play uh, international baseball. We want to go play for Team USA. Guys that really don't get that chance now. Have you th- ever get a chance to talk about just what it means to play for Team USA? Like, what kind of an impact did that make on you? Well, I have mixed emotions about that, to be honest with you. I... Um, I loved the the Olympic team I played on was the best team that I ever played for. Obviously, big league teams are are more talented, Um, but it was the best team. And um, I think part of the reason for that was it was an amateur team. You know, we were all collegiate players at that point. And, you know, like I mentioned, we had Robin Ventura from Oklahoma State and Tino Martinez from the University of Tampa, Charlie Nagy from UConn, and Ben McDonald from LSU. And our our coaches were some of the best coaches in college baseball. Mark Marcus from Stanford and Skip Bertman from LSU. So there was tremendous pride in competing for that team and in going up against, you know, other amateur teams who were incredibly talented, Cuba and Japan. And, you know, a lot of those players weren't coming to the big leagues like they do now. So, uh, we walked on the field a lot of days as the underdog. Um, so I, I love that experience. I think there was a buy-in um, that comes along with playing for your team. You know, you had All-American starting pitchers who went on to be big team, big long-term big league players who were happy to pitch out of the bullpen on that team. And, and, and so it was really special in the way that team came together, and, and, and I love that. And um if it does become more of a mix of, of, of professional players, I understand that everybody wants to watch the best players in the world play. Um, but I hope that same spirit, you know, embodies uh, the approach that's taken by USA Baseball and the same appreciation for, you know, to play at the Olympic Games. And, and I can tell you there's nothing better than standing on that podium and, and receiving a gold medal uh, with 24 of your best friends. Jim, we had a chance to connect for the first time when Shohei Otani was first coming up in the big leagues. And, and there was some people kind of comparing Shohei coming, you know, as a two-way player, coming into the major leagues right away. A, a little, obviously, very different from your circumstance, but in some ways there were similarities. A lot of media attention, a lot of people interested in something that, you know, nobody had really done before. Um, when you think about the way Shohei was able to break in, I don't know if we've talked about it since, um, how, how would you say that you feel about the way Shohei, you know, made an impact in Major League Baseball basically in his first week? He was really something. Um, like everybody else, I got kind of caught up in it. He's become one of my favorite players. And, and um, I don't think truly because of, you know, unfortunately a couple injuries that we've had a chance to sit back and appreciate. Uh, and everyone's marveled at it, of course, but th- this is – it's unheard of, you know, to, to – yeah. I mean, <laughs> to throw as hard as he does and, and – in as polished of a delivery as you can imagine, uh, to have the command of those pitches and then go out and hit with the power that he does, and then, you know, home plate to third base probably, you know, would would 
with Mike Trout in terms of speed, I mean, this is a, a, a generational, uh, maybe multi-generational kind of athlete. And um, I was really excited to see, you know, him healthy and, and, and see what kind of contributions he can make this year. And maybe this added time is going to, you know, help him along in that process. But I hope and I pray uh, that all of baseball, and not just here in Southern California, but all of baseball gets a chance to see Shohei Otani in full flight because uh, it's it is it's really incredible and and the power I mean the places that he hits the ball in the ballpark and and the humility with which he goes about his work is um, is really special and 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 I hope that we get a chance to see it you know unimpeded. Oh, no doubt. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's a freak. And I, I think you, you bring up a good point. This delay for Shohei may not be the worst thing because when he comes back, I mean, in theory, he should be able to pitch and hit at the same time. And uh, that's going to be absolutely crazy uh, when he does that. We can finally get a chance, hopefully, uh, to see a full season uh, of Shohei getting a chance to do that. Um, you know, obviously, he's got a ton of media attention talking multiple countries, covering Shohei Otani. But um, when you came up, you got the immense media attention as well. What is it like handling that and still trying to go about your business when, you know, everyone's always wanting to talk to you and, and talk about the story and, you know, covers, you know, so many different elements about you? I mean, you're a household – you are a household name. So in that sense, um, what was it like getting that at such a young age and, and handling that and still being able to perform? It was an interesting time. I can't imagine what it's like nowadays, um, you know, with the, with all of the channels and coverage and MLB.com, everything that, you know, is, is out there. Um, but I was, you know, I was really lucky. I had great advice. Um, you know, a, a lot of Angel fans are familiar with Tim Mead and, um, you know, Vice President of Communications, and, and Tim and I, he he got there before I did, but uh, we kind of grew up together a little bit, and and he was there, he was right there by my side, and and um, we had a strategy, you know, we tried to tried to accommodate as many people as we could, we tried to, you know, not make it into the human interest story of the week, you know, we tried to make the story about merit and about ability, and and that was my goal, you know, I, I appreciated, I came to appreciate you know, what those stories meant to families and kids who were facing similar challenges as mine. I, I got that, and uh, Tim made me appreciate that in ways over the first few years with the Angels uh, I never would have imagined. But, uh, you know, again, I thought the story should be about being as good as you can, and it's it's wonderful to participate. I believe in being on teams and whatever you can add to them. Um, but I always wanted the story to be about being good and 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 being a contributor and, and being something, you know, somebody that the team can look to. So Tim was incredible in helping me to manage and balance that approach. Was that ever frustrating when, when there's people that come in and, you know, like when the Good Morning Americas of the world want to make the, you know, talk about the human interest side of it, but, you know, you're, you're trying to play baseball and you want this to be about, hey, look, this is, you know, I, I, got, I got two wins last week and, you know, talk about that kind of success. How, how much of a challenge was that for you? Did you ever get kind of down about that? You know, there were times it ebbed and flowed. Um, you know, there were times when, when, you know, I hope the story would be more about, you know, having success, and and um, and and I wanted to to be a part of something. You know, I wanted to be on a team. Um, I loved that more than anything. I loved the locker room. I loved the being a part of the starting pitching staff and, and being a part of a pitching staff as a whole. And then, you know, and, and that is the biggest thing that that any ball player misses when their career is over is that feeling. And and there were times when some of those stories and some of the, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned awards and, um, made created a feeling of separation, you know, that that somehow my story was different or somehow that, um, you know, I wasn't quite like everybody else. And and um, I, I didn't always appreciate that. I, you know, it, it, it is what it is, and 
and I came to really relish that and understand the power of that. But it, it was a process. It was a feeling that evolved rather than, you know, being born with. Right. And, it, and it's you know really interesting to hear you say those kinds of things. And, you know, I just think about that. It's, you know, any superstar to some extent is going to deal with that kind of separation and handling, you know, different things and growing into being a leader. Um I want to talk about the no-hitter for a second because I was watching some video of that game. Uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, Mike Gallego, New Angel bench coach, uh, helped uh, get one of those outs, a uh, big out with a big play in the ninth inning of that game. Um, how much, like, what of that day do you remember about the no-hitter and, and you know, kind of going leading up to game time and the way things went? What was that day like? It was, um, I always loved day games. Uh, I loved pitching day games. Um, didn't matter where, what team I was on. I just enjoyed that. So, you know, you get, I got up in the morning and I lived in, in Manhattan at that point. And I took the, I think I took a cab to the ballpark and, and, um, it was kind of a rainy day. There was some question whether the game was going to be played at all. And, and, uh, I've met some people since then who have said, you know, I didn't go because it was raining that day. And, uh, <laughs> it was, that's, kind of cracks me up but um it was just an incredible moment I, I was coming off a really tough start uh five days before against the same exact team the cleveland indians and they had a pretty good up-and-coming team albert bell and manny ramirez and lofton and, and Bayerga and uh you know so they were formidable and and uh i had gotten beaten up a little bit by them the last time and you know i hadn't had a great year i i was um, you know, I've been traded from the Angels, which, you know, I mean, I, it's fair to say was a fairly um, uh, traumatic thing. You know, I always thought I'd be an Angel. I thought I'd play my career there, and I never expected really to be traded. Uh, and then was kind of fighting for my baseball <laughs> uh, life in New York. You know, I was below 500 and, and, and struggling and trying to find, you know, my footing and here in this game just kind of came out of the blue and it, and it wasn't perfect. I was wild. And you know, and I, I got a couple hard hit ground ball, double plays. And, and then just this sort of magical last few innings where that, you know, trust and belief and excitement came back and, um, you know, seeing guys like Mike Gallego, I love gags, great second baseman, great teammate, Randy Velarde at shortstop, Wade Boggs at third base, Donnie Mattingly at first. And, and uh, they just made some unbelievable plays. And, and to get that last out, ground ball to Velarde at shortstop, you know, throws it to Donnie Mattingly, who was our team captain and, and, and a guy who I admired greatly. Uh, and to celebrate, you know, walking around Manhattan that night, you know, Saturday night, early edition of the Sunday papers on every newsstand, picture on the back, signing autographs, cabs honking. Uh, drinking entirely too much champagne and, and just having a ball. And, and um, no. you know, it, it changes your life. It shouldn't, you know. I mean, it's one game and there's some good fortune involved. But I'm so pleased that a lot of people remember it and, and hang on to it. Well, I'm just glad of two things. One, I'm glad that we get a no-hitter story other than the one that Clyde Wright tells because I've only heard about 10,000 times. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but to hear that, and it, there is no better time Saturday afternoon in New York City to throw a no-hitter? Are you kidding me? That must have been, like, the most incredible uh, after-party you could possibly have. That's like that's like Saturday Night Live stuff, I would imagine. That is uh, fantastic. Uh, but, you know, you, you go from – you know, you, you referenced the trade a, a moment ago, going from the Angels, and, and it wasn't just – you know, kind of the team you came up with, but gosh, you're talking about the kind of character of, of people that were a part of this organization and, and, you know, being around them and how much they welcomed you and all that. You use the word traumatic for that experience. What, what was traumatic about it? Was it the, the shift of dealing with a whole new place and the unknown? Was it going away from somewhere that was so comfortable to you? And, And how did you kind of deal with that? Well, maybe traumatic is, is in this day and age is, is, is a bit strong. I, you know, it was people get traded, people deal with disappointment. Uh, I think any player will tell you their initial, most players will tell you that their initial reaction to being traded is to look back. Before you begin to look forward, you look back. And, 
I was in, you know, not to rehash the whole thing, but I was in a contract negotiation with the Angels. I'd been there for four years. I felt uh, uh, firmly in, entrenched in the organization with friends and, and, and the community. Um, and, I, you know, the negotiations, I wouldn't even say were going that bad. They were just kind of at an impasse. And, um, and then they're, you know, I got traded, and, and uh, you know, I guess from the from the ball club's perspective, it made sense. They got a couple of good players, including J.T. Snow, and you know, and then I went to New York. So, um, I it was tough because I, like I said, this is where I grew up with with my baseball family. I grew up in Michigan, but you know, it was people that I uh, really respected, and always, you know, the people that I loved growing up playing baseball, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker. And, uh, you know, they, these are the guys who, you know, played in their same hometown forever. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And it, and it didn't happen. And, and, um, so I had to, I had to deal with that. And, and I am thankful now, um, to have gone to New York. It's such a different experience to play for the Yankees. Um, I'm, I'm to go there, to have a connection with the city, to throw a no hitter there. Uh, sometimes I think, some things are meant to be, but, um, you know, it was tough, you know, it was tough. I, 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 I felt the disappointment from the, from the angel fans and I, and I felt it very deeply and, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't regret the way things turned out, but that was a very difficult time. A couple of uh, minutes ago, we were talking about Mike Gallego, and I know that you know you've been referencing Marcel Latchman, who's somebody that Joe Madden constantly is talking about. Now we see Joe back as the manager of the Angels. Uh, it's finally happened, and after he spent his whole life, uh, basically in a baseball life with this organization, now he's back and in charge of the Major League Club, which has uh, got to be an incredibly fe- great feeling for him. Uh, but for you, I would imagine you've had many interactions with Joe Madden. Um, what's your level of excitement when it comes to seeing what Angels baseball can be with Joe Madden at the helm? Oh, I think everybody. I think even uh, I think even Mike Sosha would tell you he's happy to see Joe back <laughs> with yeah. with the with the Angels if it's not him. And, and um, you know, Joe's a charismatic guy. He, he's interesting guy. Um, he looks at life and he looks at baseball differently um, than a lot of people. And, um, you know, I grew up, he was in the Angel organization for most of my years there. Uh, he was a manager, interim manager when I was there. And, and uh, when I was having one of the most difficult years of my career, when I came back to the Angels, um, Joe was there and he was a tremendously uh, uh, empathetic and supportive. And I'll always be thankful for that. Um, and just to, you know, he, he, he has a personal connection with the people in this organization. He has seen them. He watched them grow up to be major leaguers. He watched them go on to raise families. And so the connection is deep. Um, we know that. Uh, I, but what I look forward to is the creative and interesting way that Joe goes about his life and the way that he runs a team. I don't know anybody who's quite like him in, in his unique worldview. And uh, it's going to be fun. I mean, you talk about Shohei Otani yeah. and, and the role that he brings. Well, you know, the, the things that Joe may dream up and ways to use him um, and, and the, the weapons within his lineup, uh, I think it's going to be interesting. And I think it's going to be um, – I think fans are going to be curious to, to watch this team play and, and to hear Joe's assessments and, and to see how they, you know, make their way through a season. Yeah, we had Joe on uh, just last week talking about some of this stuff. And, I mean, it, he is just a, a fascinating guy. And I, I know, for one, I'm pretty excited to see uh, what he's going to be doing here with this Angels organization. Jim, I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. But before we let you go, I, I know that, you know, before all this, you know, coronavirus pandemic took place, uh, you're out on the road that we kind of talked about before speaking engagements, all those kinds of things. But if there was one message maybe from that that you would want to leave with some of the listeners of this show, 
Uh, what was what's kind of the the most important thing people should know when, when you're out giving them um, advice and and doing the motivational speaking circuit and all that comes with that? What's the one takeaway you think people should have? You know, if there's one thing that I would try to say, one thing that I try to convey in in my talk is that so much more is possible than we sometimes think, and and um, it, it's it's usually the darkest right before the dawn and and i use the no hitter that i pitched for the yankees you know i I, five days before that game i got absolutely shelled in cleveland i didn't make it out of the third inning i was frustrated i was angry i spent five days beating myself up um it was it was a really lonely time of questioning myself and wondering what was going on and why i couldn't find the answers and 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 then five days later, Yankee Stadium, I pitched one of the greatest games of my life and had one of the greatest moments of my life. And, and to me, that's a synopsis of, of all that is possible. And in this improbable world, sometimes when things look, look the worst, um, you never know what's around the corner tomorrow. So we just hang in there, we keep fighting, we keep working, and, and uh, believe that good things are going to happen. So true, especially now with everything that people are going through. That's just so important to keep in mind uh, as we go about our lives. Jim, thanks again. Hey, I tell you what, I can't wait for the day that we can hang out together at the ballpark, hanging at the Big A. Hopefully it's real soon. But thanks again for coming on this show, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Shane. You do a great job. I hope to see you at the ballpark soon. And hang in there, everybody. We'll get there. Man, great stuff from Jim Abbott right there. Obviously, anytime you get a chance to talk to an angel legend like that and just such an inspirational guy with a great message, really cool to hear uh, from him. We also are going to welcome onto our show now Chris Epting, baseball historian, baseball author, friend of the show. I'm not sure you've heard me talk about his book, Roadside Baseball, and how much I enjoy that. He's got a lot of other great works as well, and he's joining us here on the phone, here on this podcast. And uh, Chris, first of all, thanks for doing this. And uh, man, how about Jim Abbott? Uh, getting a chance to hear from him, and I, I was just, you know, it was fun going back to hearing his side of the story about when he first came into the big leagues and skipping the minor leagues and everything that went on with that um just from your perspective as a baseball historian what do you remember about uh, jim abbott's debut i think you know jim abbott to me you know when you hear him tell his story he still defies all logic it's like you wouldn't if you wrote this as a script nobody would believe it you know this guy not just the abilities but the but the determination and the tenacity and, and the gifts that he had and skill set and just what an amazing guy he was you know uh, from a personality standpoint. I mean, I followed his career so closely. Um, you know, I've had a chance to interview him a couple of times, and he just, you know, he, he's mind-blowing in terms of what he deliver, what he delivers, what he brought to the game. But he was, you know, he transcended baseball. He was a guy that, you know, even I knew people that weren't big baseball fans, but they followed him because he just made you feel so good about life and potential and, and faith and hope and all those things. And he, he just remains that guy. So... You know, uh, I, I, I was a fan. I loved seeing him play. I would deliberately get tickets, you know, knowing when he was going to pitch, no matter who he was pitching for, just to, you know, just to get a chance to see him pitch live. Yeah, that is uh, awesome to hear you talk about him like that. And, uh, you know, it was really cool having him on the show. Chris, all right, the, the real reason why we wanted to have you on today is because there are a lot of people that have never experienced anything like this before when it comes to baseball. Baseball has essentially been canceled. Now, actually, let me rephrase that. Baseball has essentially been postponed. It's not canceled. Right. It's coming back. We just don't know when. This is the first time in my lifetime I've ever felt anything like this. There have been stoppages in baseball before, but for something like this, I mean, I mean what can you compare this to? Is this like nothing. World War II? Is, is it like... It. There's yeah. nothing. There's absolutely yeah. nothing. I know people will go back in time and they'll look at the 1918 season, you know, for obvious reasons. There was a, a flu pandemic happening at the same time. But baseball didn't stop, you know. It's, it, it went on. And 
So we really have no reference. We can talk about strikes and short stoppages and things, but this kind of, you know, put the brakes on, no end in sight kind of thing, it's never happened. And so I think that's why for, uh, for baseball fans in particular, this time of year when it hits, you know, at the timing that it did, all of our, like, internal rhythms were getting ready. We were in the middle of spring training. You know, it was really, it's that, that really sweet spot of, of the season where you're getting ready. You can, opening day is just on the other side of that hill, and, and you're getting ready. And then to have it all taken away is, it, you know, again, of course, it's upsetting every aspect of life. But I think for baseball fans, the timing of it, was was really crucial because things were just about to really get going and it was a really interesting spring training so far so so again historically there's there's nothing um to compare it to for for people that don't know in 1918 what was you know then called the spanish flu even though it had, didn't start in spain that's just the name of it ended up being given i uh, didn't stop baseball world war one was far more influential in terms of slowing the sport down and affecting the sport because a lot of the players um, entered war, you know. And interestingly, a lot of doctors at that time had also entered the war. So as far as figuring out what that pandemic was all about, it was a lot harder than it is today. A lot of the doctors were tied up during wartime, you know, overseas. And so, um, you know, the flu, it did have an effect um, in the off-season, you know, in the fall, starting in the fall of 1918 into 19. But it it didn't stop the game. And the World Series that year was played a little bit earlier uh, in September. What's interesting, though, is that the flu did affect the World Series in that the spitball was still a legal pitch in 1918. But for the 1918 World Series, they outlawed it because of the flu, because of how contagious everybody was. That is, uh, of all things, that, that's like the last thing I would have thought about, the, the role that the spitball would have yeah. uh, and how the flu had an impact on that. that. That's remarkable. But you're right. When I think of 1918, I think of uh, the Red Sox winning the World Series before not doing it again until 2004. I, I mean, that's what I think well, of. Well, that's right. And, and that's, that's yeah. sort of a demarcation line. But, but, again, when you mention the Red Sox, you've got to mention Babe Ruth, of course. And Babe Ruth, you know, it's thought that he had the flu that year, not once but twice. And, and one time in particular, it was really serious. It was actually, uh, as the season had started in May, he and his wife had gone for a day at the beach out in Revere Beach, north of Boston. And, and soon after that, that evening, in fact, he developed a very high fever, 104 degrees. And it was the cure, or the supposed cure, that almost killed him. They actually painted his throat with a solution containing silver nitrate, which caused a horrific reaction in him. And that's what almost killed him that year. But, of course, he bounces back. And, and another thing that year you know, that affected Ruth deeply was because of the war, so many players had entered the service that the Red Sox needed Ruth to become an everyday player. So were it not for World War One, um, you know, Ruth probably wouldn't have become an outfielder that year, and that's really the year we start to see him evolve as a power hitter. It's 1918 because all of a sudden he's in the lineup now every day, still push, still pitching full rotation. But uh, you know, it's interesting. He hits 11 home runs that year, and that's you know was a big deal. Uh, it doesn't seem like a big deal today, of course, but uh, but in 1918 it was. And uh, you have to figure he, you know, he, um, he hit seven home runs in 17 games. Now that was unprecedented in that era. And so 18 is a very special year for Ruth, not just because of the flu, but because of the opportunities that the war afforded him becoming a more full-time player. That's so interesting to hear that kind of context because there are so many times, like we saw it in the 2018 season with Shohei Otani and coming yep, up, and exactly. he was pitching and hitting at the same time, and you know it'd be the reference, okay, first time this has happened, you know, since 1918. So it's like been a hundred years with Babe Ruth, but to understand the context of that and World War One's role in that, and you know, obviously the the Spanish flu having an impact there, uh, that is absolutely remarkable to me. But Chris, you mentioned some other stoppages there have been work stoppages in baseball uh, in world war ii um we, we saw baseball stop you know how how did baseball come out of some of these stoppages were, were there you know major impacts in, in terms of you know how long it took for baseball to recover 
Well, listen, World War II, which is really interesting, I think people assume there was kind of a shutdown, but there wasn't. Uh, Then-President Franklin Roosevelt felt it was important for baseball to go on as usual. They played baseball through four wartime seasons because he felt it would be good for the country. And even though you had, you know, obviously many key players from Joe DiMaggio to Bob Feller, um, you know, entering the service, baseball still went on. One, one interesting result that came out of that, so many of the minor leagues were disbanded during the wor- World War II because so many young men were drafted. That gave rise to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which many people are familiar with them from the film League of Their Own. So that was one reaction that was a really positive uh, thing that, that came out of that. The Women's League was a direct result of what was happening during the war. Um, but but the games went on. You know, there was no real stoppage, which I think is interesting. And I think it shows the durability of the game and the, and the importance of the game. You know, and you go back to 1918 for a second. I mean, the NFL wouldn't be created for a few years. Baseball, for a lot of people, was all there was, really, in terms of a big professional sport to follow. So baseball, I think, occupies a much different part of the American fabric than other sports. Um, and it and it's always endured. That's why this period right now in time is so daunting because we have nothing to compare it to. This exact situation has never happened like this. You know what I mean? Where they they really can't predict anything or plan anything. And I I think that's why it's so upsetting. You know, for a lot of people, not just baseball fans, obviously, because nothing is going back to normal. But uh, you know, hopefully they can they can figure out some something in the. Uh, in, in the long term, in the next couple of months, hopefully, to help stem the tide. Because I do think right now, just like FDR knew that baseball would be important to the country, uh, you know, he, uh, he wrote a thing called the Green Light Letter, which gave his endorsement. I almost think we could use something like that right now uh, when, when the coast is cleared, uh, because I think baseball would help people uh, reunite and refocus and just give people something to, to think about that's this positive right now. When you think about it, Baseball has always been there, like you say, and it's always been therapeutic. While the country has, has gone through some really tumultuous times, baseball has been, you know, a consistent part of everyday life for so many Americans. And, you know, you bring that up, but I instantly, my brain in my lifetime goes to 2001 and 9 yeah. 11 and what happened and, and the role that baseball played in helping the country heal is so significant. So, uh, could you see this as, as a scenario where maybe baseball doesn't come back in its traditional form where there's 40,000 fans at the Big A cheering on Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Anthony Rendon, and maybe it's the kind of scenario where, okay, maybe you do have to go play in Arizona in front of no fans for a little bit to at least get the game back on TV. How therapeutic can that be to the country? I think that would be one of the greatest that you could have. You mentioned 9-11. You know, the, that image of, of President, President Bush throwing that first pitch out, that became one of the most iconic film clips in baseball history. When you think of, you know, when you think of the real, you think of Kirk Gibson, you think, you know, there's certain clips in baseball, if you were to name, like, your top ten, and that goes right to the top of the list because of what it did for people. It showed people that, yes, the game goes on, that, yes, as a culture, as a society, um, we can rebound from these things, but but it you know it touches all the emotional bases too. When you, when you watch a baseball game, all of a sudden that pulls together every generation, every grandparent, every grandchild. You know all the uh, all the connections of having a catch with a father and son and mother and brother and sister. All of those things. That's what baseball does. So I think if they can get to that point, like you say, where they can stage something that that looks like a baseball game, I, I think that'll have a lot to do with this. You know, this sort of collective anxiety that we all share, just the stuff that we miss, you know, just the things, the little escapes that we used to have. So uh, I hope they can get that together because, again, right now, um, there, there is no precedent for this right now for a lot of things in life, but especially for baseball. You know, I, I try watching the video games and the, you know, the eSports and the iRacing and all these things. You know, I, I know the NBA is talking about maybe playing a game of horse with some fans. It's just not the same. Now, I know baseball is talking about maybe tweaking some rules. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's been any formal discussion about it. Sounds like everything is still on the table. Uh, but even with some rules changes, boy, I, I just think baseball could be served by this. 
um, in a big way, and our world could be served by baseball just coming back, even if the game isn't necessarily what we know and remember, just to have a form of it that is close to real baseball. I think that that's something that uh, could be very beneficial. Have there been other things that, that you can kind of remember off the top of your head, Chris, about you know, how baseball w- was changed by the stoppage, like, you know, more recently, uh, the 94 strike. It, it seemed like well, it took baseball yeah, a while to recover. Yeah. yeah, I think the 94 strike is the example where it really faced its biggest challenges at that point because, it, you know, so many fans severed ties with it at that point, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of ill will. And as most baseball fans remember, it, was, it, it really took, I think, the 98 home run race to, for a lot of people to re-engage and kind of put things aside and, and reinvest in, in sort of the glory of the game. Because here, here now we had something that was so special, you know, at least in as much as we knew then, uh, you know, in a, in a pre-steroids world. It just captivated all of us. And it kind of, you know, again, I had my, my issues with the game at that point. But you know what? That, that year in 1998, I kind of put them aside. That, that won me back. Um, this is obviously a different kind of challenge because... It's not a, you know, I think strike situations are different, and the way fans react to those are different. But, but right now, there's, there's really, there's no sides. There's nobody to blame. This just is sort of like an act of nature that's taking over. Um, but to your point, I think whatever version of the game they could get back on the field, I do think it would go a long way in, in, in healing a lot of people's uh, anxiety. I mean, I, you know, I've been watching so many old clips of Angels games. You know, I've been thinking, yeah, I've, I've kind of cycled through the O2 stuff, which is, you know, always incredible. But I've been watching other, other games as well over the years, little clips and things, and it, it helps. You know, it really helps to think back and look and, you know, I right as this was starting a few weeks ago, you know, I drove by the Big A, and it was like I just looked in there from the from the freeway, and I just automatically was ticking off all of the amazing games. You know, my son Charlie and I had seen there over the years. So, so we, you know, it's there. It, it's embedded. You know, we we want this, but I I think it is fun. I would encourage any baseball fan. Look up a game you might have been at. You know, I mean, go online and find some fun clip of a moment or a postseason spectacular, something you remember that got you excited. Just to remember, I mean, look, there's plenty of baseball out there recorded for us and documented for us. Uh, what better time to sit down and watch the Ken Burns documentary? What better time to pick up a great baseball book? I've been reading, rereading The Glory of Their Times, which is all about the dead ball era players. You know, for me, it's really just kind of laying in wait, watching things and trying to remain connected until the game comes back. It isn't for lack of, of baseball resources that are out here. Listening to a young guy like you on the air coming out with your stories you know, and your perspective on this. this. These are the things that I help. Well, I think help fans get over the uh, the hurdle we're facing right now. Chris, I, I think you're spot on, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's so funny. Um, you, you mentioned the Ken Burns documentary. I, I just did a segment on the sports page that we do every uh, every day, every morning, Monday through Friday on AM eight thirty, and. I, I, w- I finished the 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 the, uh, the tenth inning. That's what it was. the tenth inning was the last one. I finished it, and then I started thinking. But that ended in in two thousand nine, and I started to think, okay, well, what would the eleventh inning look like? And, and maybe right. you and I are going to have to come back and do this again because uh, I, I would be curious to see your thoughts on what Ken Burns' eleventh inning would look like and just the the history that's happened since 2010. Heck, the history that has happened in this game since the start of 2020 uh, is absolutely crazy. But Absolutely. That, that would be too, a fun yeah. conversation, Trent. I would love to do that because you're right. You're right. The game, a lot's gone on since then. And, and in that vein of, of slowing the game down for a second and really appreciating the finer aspects of it and analyzing things that have gone on, it's been a, it's been a tumultuous couple of decades since yeah. the uh, that documentary ended yeah it would be uh, i think it'd be really interesting to go down and, and kind of look at that kind of stuff um you know you spark just in my brain thinking about old games i remember being at a game at the big a it was, it was the angels against the red sox right at the heart of uh the height of pedro martinez i can't remember if it was oh two or oh three it might have been oh three and i i remember he was facing he was facing the Angels and Ramon Ortiz was going for the Angels and in that game uh, Pedro throws like a three hitter gives up one run it was a first inning Tim Salmon home run 
And then Ramon Ortiz tossed a, a two-hit shutout. And I just remember, like, the greatest pitching duel I've ever been at. I sat in the 400 section, had good seats between first base and third. I just remember it so vivid, or excuse me, between home plate and third. Just remember it so vividly. Uh, is there anything that's really come back to you about maybe taking your son Charlie to a game um, in the last few years that's kind of sparked, uh, you know, just kind of those thoughts of going back and watching old baseball games? Well, I mean, listen, we for, for us, the memory, you know, uh, it's it's hard to escape O2 because I always think that, that the O2 season for kids of a certain age was the perfect postseason. Charlie, I believe at that time was, um, let me see, O2, um, born in 93, so so he's, he's a young kid, you know, he's eight, nine years old at that time, right? And and for kids of that age, all if it was nine postseason games, they were all played at either one o'clock or five p.m. Right? So it was perfect for, for young kids to go because they could stay for the whole game. It wasn't like when you'd watch the Yankee games that are getting over like midnight or twelve thirty. And, and that's what we always reflect upon. Just those series there, those uh, three series we got to enjoy between the Yankees and the Twins and then the Giants. You know, I, I you know, we still stop and look at the the trophy, you know, and the artifacts and, and the main, you know, the main gate there when you walk in. Those are the ones for us. There are plenty of other moments along the way. I remember in particular Tony Gwynn's last game at Angel Stadium when they had started playing interleague, and that that was really a special moment. Uh, same thing when Cal Ripken came through. I thought the Angels did a wonderful job of helping out with his kind of victory lap that year for for Cal's last series at the stadium. So, so again, the Angels have always made it, uh, you know, for us and I'm sure for lots of other families, always made it a very special environment, always took the time and attention to commemorate, you know, those moments. We think back to when players would set up the little autograph stations pregame, you know, kind of like in the late 90s when things were sort of quiet at the ballpark. You'd wander in and there would be Tim Salmon sitting at a table or there would be Darren Erstad sitting at a table signing autographs before a game, on game day, which was always such an incredible thing, you know. So we have, we have just endless memories um, at the ballpark. And, you know, we just want to, we want to get back to making more of them like a lot of other fans. We're, we're ready, you know. But in the meantime, look, this thing is obviously bigger than all of us. It's bigger than baseball for right now. So as we lay in wait, hopefully there will be something that, you know, I, I think if anything can come out of the gate and begin to help healing and get it together again, I think it would be some kind of baseball season. I think that would go so far in, in, in again, helping ease people back into some sort of normalcy and appreciating, you know, what summer is really supposed to be like in the United States. Chris, hey, I can't thank you enough for coming on and taking us down memory lane. You're bringing back, like, the, the mind of 10-year-old Trent getting pulled out of fourth-grade class to go be at the Angels Parade in 2002 and how much uh, I remember that and uh, what an exciting time that was. And, and the oh, stuff listen, on man, Babe we Ruth. All, see, how many people listening now would take their little league teams and march around the outfield, you know, yeah. march on the warning track, all of those events at the ballpark, it's so collectively ingrained in how we've been. I've been out here, in, I mean, I've been an Angel fan, you know, since we moved uh, to California in, in the late, for me, in the late 80s. And, you know, so collectively, uh, the memories we have there are just so special. And we just, we want to get back to them. We want to have our team out there. You know, everybody feeling good, feeling healthy. We, we want to see Mike Trout. I mean, for me, it's like, I, you know, Trout to me is still the one that you, you just want to see what he's going to do to the game this year, right? So more than anything, I think it's what a lot of people want to see is what, where's that guy's trajectory headed? What is next for him? So, so selfishly, I think, like a lot of other fans, I just want to see where, where Trout takes the game next, you know? We need our game back. We need our life back. And uh, hopefully that is coming very, very soon, and it uh, can't come soon enough, if you ask me. And, and that would also mean the end of this thing, which would be uh, just fantastic. Chris, thanks again. Always uh, good stuff when you come on, and I always feel like I learn a ton whenever we have you, so we'll have to do it more. Uh, well, thanks, thanks Ben You too. Thanks for, for keeping the, you know, carrying the torch as you are. We're going to get through this. It's, uh, this too shall pass, as they say, and hopefully the, uh, the grand game will be out there for us sooner than later. Love the positivity. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Trent. All right, that's going to just about do it for us here on this podcast. Thanks to Jim Abbott and to Chris Epting for joining us on the show. We're going to keep having these podcasts every Wednesday. So wherever you're listening to this right now, make sure you click that subscribe button. Subscribe to the podcast so that every Wednesday you get an alert, you get a notification that there is more Angels content out there. We're going to keep these shows going. 
beyond this hiatus, even when baseball comes back. So you want to make sure you check that out. Of course, listen to AM830 every day on Mondays will be Madden Mondays. Roger Lodge will talk with Angels manager Joe Madden and I'll have the sports page every hour uh, throughout the mornings, Monday through Friday as well, talking about a lot of cool, unique baseball stories that we're sharing on the radio, doing things a little bit differently here in this baseball hiatus on the radio, but we're sure glad that you're joining us for all of that. Hopefully baseball is back soon. I'm ready for it. I know you are too, but in the meantime, thank you for checking out the Angels Recap Podcast. I'm Trent Rush, and have a great rest of your day. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.